Luca, it's such a pleasure to have you. Thanks for inviting me, Andrew. I think it'd be great to get started on just a bit on your background and how you ended up in the insurance world so everyone knows where you come from. Sure, happy to do so. I've been stuck in academia for quite some time with a PhD in Italy and two postdocs, so one in, uh, in the UK and uh, one here in Switzerland, really focusing on the hardcore math of, of machine learning. Then I wanted to transition to something more practical. And at quite a late age, I jumped into a startup that was an exciting roller coaster journey for three and a half years, where we tried to apply AI to analyze the drone imagery and satellite imagery for large-scale agriculture, large-scale mm. farming, especially in South America and Eastern Europe. And then after those three exciting years, intense years, I wanted to try a different environment. Be, be corporate, be a multinational. And here in Switzerland, we are really lucky to have uh, Swiss Re, which is one of the leading global reinsurers. And as the reinsurers, they have to cover really so many different things. They really need to understand how the world works in so many different domains. And that was very exciting for my curious mind. So four years ago, I joined as a leading scientist at Swiss Re, and it's been a very interesting time for me to really discover what insurance and reinsurance is all about all our different mm. markets, different insurance products, and how we can actually make those products even better and delight our customers and clients uh, with the use of data and AI. Amazing background. And I'm really excited to dig into all the interesting stuff that you've worked on and what's coming up in the future. But before we get into that, I think it'd be helpful to understand the business of Swiss Re to the extent that you can summarize such a large and complex business in just a minute or two, but any context you think is necessary for us to understand. First, I think it's important to give the definition of actually the difference between insurance and reinsurance. So most people are familiar with insurance. It's the, the companies that provide your car insurance, your health insurance, dental, home insurance, so directly to private customers, what we call personal lines. However, some of these companies need to offset or hedge their risks uh, like you would do with a normal investment fund. And the way they're hedged is that they cede part of their risks to another insurer, and this time it's called reinsurer, which is a, has a much broader, diverse, and global portfolio. So if, for example, an earthquake strikes uh, in California, uh, it can be compensated by earthquakes not happening in Japan at exactly the same time. But if you're a Japanese insurer only focusing on Japan properties, you might be wiped out by, by a large earthquake if you don't buy reinsurance. So that's really the scope of reinsurance to distribute the risk across uh, multiple products, multiple business lines, and really across the globe. So as reinsurance, we really need to be global. We can't be regional. Mm. Then the Swiss Re itself, it's structured along uh, five business units. We have the life and health reinsurance. So it really caters reinsurance for life and health lines of business. The PNC, property and casualty. So all the commercial properties, uh, uh, natural catastrophes, and liabilities, those fall into PNC. Then we have something called Global Clienting Solutions, which is a business unit that caters to our largest clients, but also through which we sell basically services or solutions for fees. So we don't really do risk transfer, but we provide services. And we also have public sector solutions, which is a bit of a mix between solutions, but also risk transfer, but for public entities. Think about the government of uh, California that wants to get some insurance to cover for the losses of earthquakes that are not privately covered. Mm. Then we have corporate solutions, 
because despite the name of solutions, that's actually our primary insurer that whose client base is corporates or commercial entities. So we don't do personal lines, so you cannot uh, go to Swiss Re corporate solutions and ask for a motor insurance. But if you are a large company, maybe your company could go to corporate solutions to insure the company's properties or maybe some of their liabilities and so on. And finally, we have a smaller homegrown company that is more to B2B to see it builds insurance technology. It's a kind of an insure tech he knows that creates white label platforms to embed insurance in, in other services. Hmm. So those are the five main and uh, of course around this, there's so-called the group functions of which uh, I'm sitting in one, the group digital and tech, but then the, you can think about HR as another group function. You can think about legal and compliance, another group function and risk management as another group function. Sure. So that's how, how it's structured. Great. Very helpful. Good framework for the conversation. And then maybe just the dimension of functions in the business, either unique to Swiss Re or typical in insurance would also be a helpful context. There's underwriting claims people typically think of, but what are each of those primary functions in a given business line? I mean, you mentioned already quite, quite a few. So we can separate product development. People will think about the new opportunities in the market. Is there a new segment of people of products that may need insurance. Think about maybe niche products like fly delay insurance, pet insurance, mobile phone insurance of people that come up with new products or changes to existing products. So that's product development. Mm -hmm. Then of course there needs to be a distribution. For insurance, it's a bit less of a of an effort of capacity because we are B2B. So we already know our clients, there's not so much distribution or marketing effort, but for primary insurers, that's a bit one of their bulk activities. They need to reach out to you. You need to know about a certain insurer if you want to apply for a certain type of insurance. Yeah, sure. Okay, distribution and sales. Then what happens, it's underwriting. So if somebody asks for coverage, there needs to be an underwriter or underwriting system, and we'll get to it later, that assesses the risk and, def- and decides whether it's a risk that we want to insure at the, at which price. So uh, underwriting is linkly, uh, tightly linked to costing and pricing. And those are where a bit the actuaries do a lot of the work in, uh, in, in making these cost estimates of different types of risks so that we can come up with the market competitive price. So then that's the beginning of a journey. Then of course, since the, our service is then to cover for claims. So then the, there is the whole claims department that they need to look at the, every claim in a more manual or automated manner and compensate for these claims or adjust and so on. And then there is all the auxiliary functions, so also very important, all the contracts management, for example, but also the advisory roles. For example, we, you insure with a, with a company and the company can also advise you on how to mitigate your risk. And this is becoming more and more important uh, also as a differentiating element uh, among reinsurers but also insurers. How can we either nudge you into more healthy behavior or how can we help you if you're a company to better understand your risk and get coverage where you need and maybe mitigate the risks where, where you can and then reduce your insurance expenses. Yeah, yeah. Okay, super helpful context. I do want to come back to that last piece. That sounds really interesting. But for the uninitiated like myself, where's the bulk of the headcount in the business? Are we talking there's 
80% of the people are in underwriting and the rest are scattered amongst the others, or I'm sure it's different across primary and reinsurance, but how would you give me a sense for that? In primary insurance, from what I know, and it's not so much, this from my perspective, for four years in the reinsurance industry, for the primary insurance, there's a lot of effort into distribution and, and sales. That they need to do active marketing. It's very competitive, especially for certain lines of business where products are pretty standardized. So it's really a challenge of reducing the cost and reaching the customers. Mm. So I would say that the most headcount efforts are there. It all depends on the type of primary insurer and the size. Because some insurances are just carriers. Basically, they just distribute predefined products sure. and they apply all the underwriting rules. Maybe they leverage insurance to do the underwriting and the claim settlement for them. So they, yeah, these carriers are more kind of financial instruments to just gain some market share. The largest sure. primary insurers, they all have their own R&D teams, the underwriting teams, claim settlement teams. The headcount probably is way more distributed across the different functions. Makes sense. So maybe to play it back to you, if you're selling through a, a broker or an MGA, primarily a broker, where there's a distribution is already handled by some third party, mm -hmm. primarily as a primary insurer, most of your work is going to be in the sort of underwriting and claims. But if you look at the insurance product as a whole across every company involved, it's going to be heavy on sales and distribution. The primary, yes. Yeah. For insurance, then it's more on the underwriting and claims, I would say. Yeah. And I guess not to dig too deep in, off the bat, but when you say claims in the context of reinsurance, I can understand what a, an auto claim would look like. I crash my car, submit that to Allstate or whatever. But, but for reinsurance, are the insurers claiming on pools of risk or how does that actually, what is that interaction? So there's two types of reinsurance. There is the treaty. Basically, there is your primary insurer that seeds a whole portfolio of risks. For example, all their motor policies uh, in a given region, they want to seed part of those risks to an insurer. So it's a treaty containing thousands, hundreds of thousands, sometimes even millions of policies. So yeah. that we, in case maybe there is a natural catastrophe event, for example, think about the hailstorm that damages uh, thousands of cars at the same time, then the insurer steps in because the primary insurer may have uh, some cash deficit you know, if, if they have to pay all these claims at the same time. Mm. So in those cases, we assess the event. We assess, okay, is it the legitimate uh, event for which we need to pay this uh, net cat losses? So guess those are the treaties. It's really bulk portfolios of policies or very similar policies. Then there is the facultative or better term, simple terms called single risks. So there is a primary insurer that wants to insure a large manufacturing plant and it's just too big of an individual risk and they want to basically split it up mm. A part they take themselves, a part they take their insurer A, another part will be our insurer B. And now there's a concept of lead reinsurer, and it says Swiss is a lead reinsurer. If there is an accident in the manufacturing plant, maybe the primary insurer does not really have the expertise to assess the claim, whether it's legit as it is, or maybe it needs to be adjusted. And, and that's maybe yeah. the role that the reinsurer will take because it has more expertise on these uh, more complex risks. Got it. Got it. Okay. Helpful context. Maybe one, one last piece before we get into the sort of more exciting stuff, the innovation and automation in the business. What are the primary categories of software that an insurer would use primary or re, generally speaking? 
So I guess we exclude all the office suite, right? Kind of outlook, yeah, yeah. PowerPoint, PowerPoint Word. I, I assume there's some of that. Printers and fax machines, I imagine. But yeah, yeah there's, there's actually, there's a lot. I think there's still a lot of communications, uh, distribution. Also, I've talked to some of my colleagues, there's mailboxes through which we receive submissions from brokers. So brokers send emails <laughs> and say, look, I would like to ensure this under these conditions, these are the documents attached describe that the property or maybe it's an individual life and this is the sort of coverage i would like to get so that is still a big chunk of the software that we use then there are specific softwares that are used to capture underwriting decisions all this information maybe goes from a mailbox from this uh, structured documents and they need to be brought into our own system so it's put into a database and both systems help with the kind of recommending underwriting decisions or even do the pricing. It's more standard risk than you put certain parameters, the size of the company you want to ensure where it's located. Yeah. And then we have models running underneath that they provide a, a quote. And, and similarly for claims, we have a system that ingests the claims. It could be a first notice of loss coming via a mailbox again, more and more through APIs, but there's still a lot of things that just come through email or secure file exchanges with our clients. And then from that yeah. needs to be ingested into a system so that obviously that goes into our data lake and data warehouses. Okay, cool. It's actually a nice transition point to say, let's talk about some of those, some of the transition that's happened in insurance and then take the chronological view all the way through today. And then we can do forward looking some of the interesting stuff you're working on. But when did we start transitioning in insurance from pure paper pushing to more digitization and automation in the process? I think that there are different timelines depending on the product. Products very off the shelf for common products or standardized products like motor insurance, uh, health insurance, mm -hmm. those are the ones that have been uh, digitized first because there, yeah. there's really a com competition on acquiring uh, customers. And also because it was easier to, to digitize because it was already somewhat standardized more complex lines, it's where digitalization is struggling because there's just so much heterogeneity on the data sources and the type of risk, but then it's not just, it's not really one size fits all. So I would yeah. say that tremendous progress has happened in the past 20 years. And if you think about buying some insurance nowadays through, through apps or comparison websites. So for the general user for a startup product, digitalization is quite way ahead. Yeah. But if you are, if you're a company seeking for insurance, the process is still very manual and very document driven. There's yeah. efforts there that I've seen here in Switzerland elsewhere, where also for some uh, commercial property, digitalization is quite advanced. At the moment you go to some more complex risks that says where it falls short of what you expect from uh, personal lines. And, and I'm sure that if you look at the, the, the products that Swissery is involved in, you have no, you're not directly writing policies in motor, as you call it, auto. It, it's going to be pretty much every business line. So it's either reinsurance of simple risks, which is complex, or insurance primary of complex risks. So in either case, it feels like most of what you're going to do is not yet that well automated at the reinsurance level. Is that a fair statement? It's a fair statement, but it's also what uh, we've been uh, addressing. I think we're also trying to separate those lines of business or those type of business for which we can uh, standardize a bit more treaties of similar risk with an effort in the insurance industry to be also much leaner there. Because yeah. brokers are also very aggressive. They send a request for coverage to multiple insurers and it's also a matter of who responds first with a good offer. 
So for mm. certain classes of risk, we try to automate what we can without degrading the underwriting and the pricing quality. But the need is there that the market demand is there to have a quick turnaround times on, on decisions uh, and the yeah. competition on prices. Got it. Got it. And maybe to finally get to, because you're starting to hint at it, what your team does and where you sit in the organization, I'd love to understand what are those big opportunities that your team are in the business to better digitize or automate some of what you do, I, either maybe that you're already working on or maybe in the promise of LLMs that have recently come out. But just generally, I'm curious for the lay of the land there. So I would like to structure it around one hand, scaling the decisions and the other hand, improving the decisions. Mm. Both, though, crucially depend on, on the quality of data that we get in. And so okay, automating or scaling decisions, I say it's more of a primary target for us because anyway, we need to do that uh, fundamental work of being able to cope with all this unstructured data that we ingest day in, day out. So that's really the biggest challenge for primary and the reassurances is that a lot of, there's a lot of documents throughout the value chain from submissions to contracts, negotiations, and claims. It's really document and information based system business. Just the information does not come in a numerical form that easily. It's not like yeah. in finance where you can just plug it with the stock market exchange and you have uh, all these numbers get updated every second or millisecond here. It's things come through normal documents, and also doesn't get updated at a very high frequency. You insure mm -hmm. something today for a year, maybe you have a claim, maybe you don't have a claim. So to collect enough claims experience, you need to you have a very large portfolio or very large time horizon. And then yes, we do collect a lot of data, but the, the data is still scarce in the terms of, of information content for what we plan to do, for example, with AI. Understood. Because the for at, primarily at this complex level, you're not going to have hundreds of thousands of contracts with primary insurers that you can you know do data science over in a simplistic sense. We can get data from, from our clients, from our primary insurers we do business with. And this is uh, some of the data formats we get to the cold border. And uh, we do get information, for example, about thousands of car policies. A car, again, it's an easy problem. But let's mm. think about the insuring flights, airplanes. There are thousands of flights every day, millions every year, but there are very few plane crashes. So if mm. you want to understand what really is the driver or how can I predict whether a plane will crash or what is the likelihood and then price it accordingly. You still have a lot of data, but there's how very little information. Luckily, so because flying is safe. This is some yeah. of the challenges that especially as an insurer that we insure the tail risk is a very large, but very rare risk. Then there's a scarcity of events, maybe not mm. of data. Is, is it generally the case that taking out these very basic lines on the infrequently claimed upon things, you're always going to have a scarcity of data and need to look for alternative data sets? Or how do you think about addressing that problem? So it's a combination of things. Alternative data sets, it's one, but still you will need to correlate them to the events of how to do some sort of data validation so that the number of events is still the factor that limits you. So that's where we really try to integrate or blend human judgment and expertise 
with the data-driven approaches. Purely data-driven mm -hmm. approaches for this events, they tend to, to fail because either the models are not robust enough or the predictions are too volatile. So you need somehow to constrain them with some human judgment. And that's where I think underwriting at some point for this very complex risk or very rare risk becomes a bit of an art. And uh, yeah, it's a liking model where you have feedback on millions of policies every it's year and then you can really fine tune what is well, what are the main risk factors driving the risk. Understood. Understood. When I think of structuring of information, I, I think of two different things. One is something that feels to me as already pretty well solved. Maybe that's not true, which is the, hey, we have a claim and we want to pull out the key fields and drop that into some structured data system. That's category one. Problem category two is I was talking to the guys at Memorial Sloan Kettering and they had this big data science team that was looking at radiology reports and they would basically pull out unstructured qualitative diagnoses and try to understand how those correlated to health conditions down the road or later hospitalizations and effectively structuring of data fields or features that you can consider in an ML model that are not in a structured data system by default. So when you look at these two problem spaces, the first point, is that the right division? And is that first one already well solved or is there a lot of work still to do there? I would say it's a good division. But the first one is not yet brilliantly solved because it goes back to the different lines of business. Some lines of business, the type of claims are very similar. So you know what you need to extract from these reports. But also with the desire of making the user experience much simpler, also these lines of business, think about motor. Now you have apps where you can take a picture of your car and write a text and look, I had a car accident, I damaged my car, can you pay me out? Then. You don't get a, uh, a standardized form through which you get your data. So it's about you make the mm. life of the customer easier, but you make your life a bit harder because you, you give that flexibility. So you still need to find ways of processing this data in, and inputting it into your system so you can validate it and, and then pay out the, or not pay out the, the claim. And then also identifying fraud is still a big issue. There's a, there's a significant proportion of, of the profits of insurance that uh, gets lost to, to fraud. And maybe as a parenthesis here, if you're familiar with DALI or stable diffusion and what this generative AI can do, I think it's very plausible that you can take a picture of your shiny new car and ask one of the systems, can you now recreate that image by breaking the front bumper or damage the rear right wheel and then get a, almost an indistinguishable image that's ready to be claimed for. So mm. it's a, a challenge that we see. How will these deep fakes affect uh, our anti-fraud systems? Man, that is a complex problem. And I, I, look, I imagine I've seen some models that can detect generated images. I'm sure that there's, it's going to be like in cybersecurity, 30-foot ladder, 31-foot wall, 32-foot ladder, and it goes and goes. But it's an interesting thing to think about. Is there work still to be done on the just the pure document structuring piece? Take out the... Sure, people submit things in a weird way, but you get a bunch of documents. Are those currently accurately being OCR'd and structured, or is there still work even there? It's work even there because these documents can be crazily heterogeneous and complicated. Yeah, there might be some mm. information uh, in the text, then some tables attached, maybe tables split across multiple pages. Maybe various, if we think about medical reports, it could be medical. It could be a bundle of medical reports, but you're only interested in the one for the cause of death or critical illness. And maybe there are 
other reports that are really relevant, but that, that form part of, the, of a medical bundle. So also already classifying and sifting through, identifying the relevant information to extract in some cases still is still a challenge. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Got it. Got it. And then to hit the other piece on that division around document structuring, what opportunities do you see to extract more signal from unstructured data distinct from what we just talked about? So there it's where the recent advances with LLM and GPT and generative AI in general seem to be opening a bridge because indeed we do get in some cases submissions for very complex risk describing, for example, the manufacturing plant or its different sites, what they produce, how they're interconnected. These documents can run in hundreds of pages. And then the writer may be looking for something very specific and they need to find it somehow like a needle into a haystack. And either they spend the time to read, read through 200 pages, but there's the risk of fatigue. And then when they reach page 110, maybe they're just lapsing and they sure. don't see it. Similarly, with some engineering reports that maybe we commission or the broker commissions to understand maybe the, the cause of a bridge collapsing and so on, we really want to understand, okay, was that really, was that really intrinsic or maybe it was human-made, it was negligence? All this information needs to be sifted through, and that's where we see some of these models really helping our colleagues or helping the industry. For example, these Q&A systems where you feed the document and then ask the system to answer questions related to the document. Yeah. Have you observed, maybe post ChatGPT coming out, that some of your the people doing this work were just dropping these files into the Anthropic or whatever the LLM was and asking questions as just to make themselves more efficient? Or have you guys tried to disallow that behavior? So we take governance very seriously as we see. So we're really aware of multifaceted risks in this space, mm. uh, especially with the confidentiality, data privacy, but also the problem of these models not being always accurate. So we took quite uh, a conservative stance where we allow innovation, allow experimentation, but with uh, definitely some guardrails. People are experimenting, but within these boundaries, so they don't uh, jeopardize uh, also the commitments we make with, with our clients uh, and also sure. with the regulators. But uh, some of the things we're, we've tried within these boundaries uh, are, are quite exciting. We don't yet have the definite words, but the power of uh, some oh. of these models are amazing. Are you able to talk about some of the things that you have tried specifically? Maybe it's what you already said, but I guess I'm just curious to understand what that actually looks like in practice, how you envision people using this day-to-day -day that maybe changes their existing workflow. The approach we're taking that all these technologies should really be there to augment decision-making and not, and not replace. So we don't want the uh, GPT-like system directly to connect to an underwriting engine and uh, talk to uh, private uh, clients like you and then uh, automatically decide whether you deserve health insurance or life insurance or not. So definitely that's something we, we don't envision. But uh, in this task where humans need to collate and make sense of large sets of information coming, especially in mm. a structured manner, we see that as a, a kind of powerful assistance that can help them find the information that they need. Especially if, if we structure this model in such a way that they give references, so they don't just give out the answer, but say, look, you can find the answer at this page in this paragraph and, right. and people can't double check that. Yeah. The, the human in the loop is, is necessary. It's paramount. We're not thinking about the systems where that would not be the case. I'd love to better understand just how you've gone at approaching this problem. Cause I imagine that pulling an off the shelf model works 
fine, but there are a bunch of reasons why it falls down. Have you guys, how have you thought about fine tuning versus prompt engineering versus all, all the techniques to improve these things? What issues have you run into? Really curious there. I think something to consider there when you start exploring the space of possibilities is why you're doing it and what's really the, the advantage of these models. And one reason these models are so powerful is, is because they can address several tasks with one model. Then you can have the same model, let's say GPT-4, used for Q&A on contracts, Q&A on engineering uh, reports, on summarization of submissions, on uh, extraction. And that's great because then you don't really have to maintain a multitude of models. In the traditional mm. machine learning approaches, we would normally develop the models for each specific use case. And then that would be a separate pipeline. This model will be versioned and there's some sort of MLOps effort in maintaining multiples, a multitude of models. If you now go down the road of fine tuning, yes, you start with one model, but then you have to maintain different fine tuned versions of it. So at the moment that we judged that the cost of doing that is what the return of doing that is not so clear. So we're just experimenting with the models without fine tuning, but of course with the retrieval augmented the Q&A. So the, we provide the information we want to query within the context and the prompt engineering. So those are the things we must explore. The fine tuning, I think also other players have tried, but that you get you may get similar advantages by just doing proper prompts and proper information feeding into the context window of the prompts. One of the things that we struggle with in the investment business, looking at technology players, is there's a huge amount of value that's going to accrue to you guys, clearly, in the, by using this technology, increasingly so over, over the next year or so as you guys figure it out. But we're trying to understand beyond just the end user, who else is able to provide and also capture value in this value chain. And maybe the, the right question to ask on that is, how do you make the build versus buy decision here? You guys have, like yourself, an exceptional talent team, a tech team in-house, but are there certain types of things that you can envision buying somewhere else? Or have you already tried to look for tools in certain categories? How do you think about that category of issues? It's a difficult question. I think we had to make many of these decisions, buy versus build. And it's, I wouldn't say there's a general recipe. There's definitely a dependency on the size of a company. Some companies just need to buy because they can't afford to have their own teams to build. Also building comes with some risks because you can't just have a data scientist building a model. You need to have a whole data engineers or the security aspects. When we think about AI machine learning, the, the model is just a small part of the entire system. So if you build, you need to build the entire system, not just the AI part. And for this, you need uh, not just data scientists, but they're software engineers, security engineers, uh, and, and so on. So for smaller companies, uh, I think it's much easier to, to buy or also leverage everything on the insurance. That's what we do with solutions business units. We, we do provide solutions for our clients, but they don't have to build. They don't have mm. to buy from any vendor. We, they can go via us that we already have an established business partnership relations of trust uh, and they, they can use uh, our softwares. Yeah. Yeah. For us, we look at specific tooling uh, and what would be the advantage for us versus building in our own. Could we build it with the same quality, with the same speed? Could we maintain it? And for some things that maybe in the open source domain or certain companies are doing very well, then it's much clearer that the effort we will need to put into building something similar and maintaining would be too high. 
some other things that are way more specific to our use cases, to our IT infrastructure, to our business, to our type of data, then the decision is much easier. We need to build it because otherwise we also create a dependency, too strong of a dependency with, with a single vendor that will control the system, but also the IP. So that's also yeah. where we can, is it important for us to keep the IP in-house and be able to quickly react to it and not depend on, well, having these contractual risks with the vendors. Sure. Okay. Understood. And, and maybe specifically within the sort of data extraction from documents, I know that a lot of the doc QA players are operating effectively by, correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding is they take the full document, effectively put it into a sequence of tokens, like you input into ChatGPT, and then based on the relative position of content in that text string, then you're doing the doc QA. It's not really looking at the document, it's looking at extracted text. Is that the correct understanding of it as it exists today? Or have there been new approaches that make more sense? For the large language models that we tend to play with, if you look at GPT-3, GPT-4, maybe GPT-4 might even be extended to the more visual reasoning. Normally it's, as mm. you said, it's a very large sequence of words and then the relative position into that line of words is what counts. However, we've seen and talked to some vendors that have smarter approaches where we combine this texture extraction with a visual understanding of the layout of documents. That's very mm -hmm. important because if you think even a standard table, financial table, and you want to know the bottom line, the bottom line is at the bottom of the column. <laughs> right. And that's a very kind of visual positioning. While if you extract it of a sequence, it becomes much harder for some of your systems to understand that actually that token is at the bottom of a column especially if you have multiple columns and then it doesn't really become the last token in the sequence. So this yeah. visual understanding systems uh, have hold the great promise, but then we need to see whether they're worth the additional computational costs and uh, yeah, and set up. Interesting. A bit of an off the wall one, but when I first saw the, the DocUA stuff come out, man, it doesn't feel like the right form factor. And I understand now why it is. If you're an underwriter, you want to quickly find a specific point in the document, but it feels to me like the right format here is for a lot of use cases, 90% of them are going to be automated extraction without humans in the loop asking questions. But is that actually not the case in insurance where you think that most, a lot of the use cases are actually going to be very interactive with humans and it's going to be more about, hey, I want to go iteratively refine my question on this document or set of questions? It's both. There are use cases where we simply want to get the certain numbers or categories into our systems and then apply our pricing or underwriting models so that we'll be mm. with less of a human supervision. Of course, the, the supervision will come uh, more towards the end. Is the recommendation in line with the with expectations? So, or maybe there will be some errors flagged during the extraction that the humans will need to review. Uh, but there are these cases where the documents may be contracts and maybe we want to understand, okay, does the contract really cover that type of claim? And then maybe the contract has been amended multiple times and they'll, you need somehow to understand the reason with the original contracts plus all the amendments. This is some of the mm. things that there is large language models can really help with. Or the engineering engineering report, for example, we don't extract everything because we would need to also have to create a, a data set schema for almost every different manufacturing plant. But you want to be able to query, okay, when was that the particular building built under which ISO standard? And maybe you want to do this more on a proactive manner when a claim uh, comes to you, 
And you might just say, ah, mm. okay, maybe I have some doubt that it's actually covered because maybe we excluded that because of certain reasons and you want just to double check that with the Q&A. So it's really yeah. different, two different use cases. The first one is more geared towards automation of standard information extraction. The other one is really more understanding in context of a specific event. Got it. Got it. Maybe taking a zoom out from where we are right now on, on just doc data extraction. I, I imagine that, because really we're talking about underwriting and claims departments, but going to the product development category, are there insights you could add that might augment how you structure the pricing for a given product or what products you think to launch or shut down. Because I could imagine that there was a bunch of data that you pulled out of, let's say, unstructured text descriptions of given buildings that then you realized actually correlated to the risk and changed your view of the risk of certain types of categ- certain types of products. Would that then change the types of products you guys want to offer in terms of existing products in the portfolio? You understand what I'm getting at, but I'm curious for your thoughts there. Yeah. I think there are two two aspects. One is how do we use AI and machine learning to do product placing, product development, product adaptation. And the second is how do we feed back some of the insights we get through the underwriting and the claims for our products. Normally, so let me start with the second. Normally in insurance, there are these experience studies. Every year, every alpha year, you go back and see, okay, among all the policies I've insured, what is the experience of claims and use that to maybe fine tune some of the parameters in your costing models. Uh, this is applies to the lines of business for which we have more volume, the motor mm. life. And then you say, this helps you to adapt with the changing, maybe driving behaviors, safety standards of cars or life or longevity changes in the population. So that's where we can be retune. You can maybe say, see it as retraining these models. And here models, it's very generic, include just be also underwriting standards, changing a line in our underwriting guidelines say, that says, look, if you have diabetes, then you're not insurable at this rate. And maybe that changes because we see that diabetes becomes much easier to treat than you, the longevity of people with diabetes is much longer now. So maybe we make, we change that underwriting yeah. guideline. So this is a bit of a feedback. Yeah. Then for new products uh, or how we do pricing or with how we potentially do pricing with AI. It's two things using some of these models and these external additional data sets to better understand trends. Maybe you don't have yet the experience when you think about introducing a new product in the market, but you want to understand, okay, first, what is the demographics of that market or what could be the, the main risks or the risk trends in, in a certain market. And that's where we maybe use uh, even some more standard analytical techniques just to get a sense of uh, the trends and the size of the market and how is the market share distributed. I think it's more standard marketing research. Yeah, understood. And then the part of pricing, if yes, maybe we identify an additional data source and then we start experimenting. Does that data source bring some additional information to the data sources that we're using before? Because mm. maybe a new data source really correlates with a certain type of risks. The question is not whether it correlates, it, it provides a match compared to what we're already measuring. Because maybe right. we say the source comes at a cost or maybe it's uh, invasive, maybe it requires a certain consent. So we're always asking this sort of question, is it worth it in terms of additional? It can go the other way. Maybe we identify some data sources that are easy to tap into that could replace some of the data sources that we're using that maybe are more onerous. And that's some mm. of the analysis that the issue is also constantly doing. 
because it could also lead to a better user experience. Maybe it's to allow you to reduce your questionnaire from 20 questions to 10 questions. Maybe we yeah. just tick of consent to accessing certain data sources and uh, you may get both a better user journey and a better pricing. Understood. That's an interesting answer. I, and I'd love to, I wish we had more time to go deeper into that. But the last thing I want to ask you is I want to make sure that the questions I'm asking are not too targeted and I'm taking sniper shots into a black box here. I don't understand that the scope of your focus generally beyond what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's a cheater catch-all question, but are there other major categories of excitement or time investment for you and your team that I'm not asking about that we should be talking about? I mean, what we should talk about, and maybe this is another conversation, is how all of this can be done responsibly. We talked about mm. automating some underwriting decisions, so we talked about pricing, but of course, we, as I said, we take governance very seriously. We have a responsible framework in place. Uh, so these things, it's not that everything you can do uh, should be done. We, we're very selective in uh, where we could have our efforts, also understanding the regulatory landscapes around us, what civil society sentiment is around us, some of these topics. Uh, and generally, we want to do good for our clients, the business, but ultimately, especially if our clients, business clients rely on our models. We want that first models have a positive impact for the end clients, the mm. individuals. So that's a whole new big topic that is really at the core of my current work that I will be very passionate to talk about. And that's history is taking very seriously. Man, I, I wish we had more time because I don't think we're going to do it justice in three or four <laughs> minutes, but we'll save that for part two, Luca on insurance, which I, I like it. Anyway, this was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for inviting. It was very exciting for me as well. Thanks again, Luca.